Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome again, podcast listeners. I've been working on a new series of episodes around writing with disabilities, But wouldn't you know it, I ran into my own limitations this week, my own mental fog and some sickness in our household that has meant that I had to spend my spoons, as they say, on other priorities. I'm in the middle of teaching a lovely cohort of writers in Lit Mag Love. That's one priority. And I've also just welcomed 143 writers into my currently free five-day mini course on Flash Memoir. So, wow, that's been a lot of new writers that I've been interacting with online, and most of them are finding out about the course from other writers. So if you're listening to this in time, so the week it's released, maybe you too know a writer who wants to write short, short memoir and can benefit from my course. It comes with guided writing recordings, illuminating readings, and not prosaic prompts. So tell your writing friends to sign up at rachelthompson.co slash flash. And if you're not listening to this in time, know that you can find out about opportunities like this by signing up on my newsletter at rachelthompson.co slash letters. So instead this week, I offer this replay of my conversation with Augur co-editor-in-chief Therese Mason-Pierre, who said, nothing has to happen in the story. There doesn't need to be explosions or big shocking twists. It's just enough to have well-developed characters and a beautiful world. As you'll hear, we spoke in the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I want to shine a light on this episode, one as a shout out to my current Lip Mag Love students, as I mentioned, who today are researching potential homes for their writing, and Augur is a lovely one if it fits your own criteria for where you want to share your words, and also two, hi, hello, welcome to writers who joined the Flash Memoir course as I think Therese Mason-Pierre relieves some of the pressure we feel when writing our own stories about needing those big moments, and instead, very apropos of flash writing, suggests we hone in on the small moments. So here is my conversation with Therese Mason-Pierre of Augur Magazine. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author, and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Coming up is my conversation with Therese Mason-Pierre, co-editor-in-chief of Augur, a Canadian speculative literature journal. Therese Mason-Pierre has also published work in Hobart, The Puritan, Quill and Choir, and Strange Horizons. Her work has been nominated for the Riesling Award, maybe it's Riesling, <laughs> I'm not sure, and Best of the Net. 
She talks about the caring and considerate reasons why Augur isn't accepting pandemic writing for the time being, how Canadian literature in general is just a little bit softer than other kinds of literature, and how she brings forward the care that she has received from editors of her work to her editing role at Augur. Listen to learn more about Augur Magazine, their annual event called AugurCon, and how they publish writing that is too speculative for literary magazines and too literary for high fantasy or hard sci-fi publications. So I want to welcome you to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast, Therese Mason-Pierre. Hi. Hi. How are you doing in the pandemic? That's my first question. I'm just wondering if it's changed your writing, and if so, how it's changed your writing. How am I doing in the pandemic? I am doing all right. I see a lot of takes online about how it's not good for you to expect yourself to do all the things that you used to do pre-pandemic and expect yourself to have the same amount of energy. So I have noticed that my energy has dropped, but I seem to be doing the same amounts of things. So I'm just feeling a little more tired in the past couple of months to a year. It has changed my writing in that I'm allowing myself to be more emotional and more personal with my writing. I've noticed the earlier writing that I did, especially with my first chapbook, it was very clean. And I was writing a lot of persona poetry about people and conflicts that weren't really about me or my life, which is totally fine. And I like to read that kind of work as well. And recently I've found that I was letting myself be a bit messier with my poetry. And sometimes I would include little bits about my life or how I really truly felt about sort of situations. And I had never really done that before. So it's just something new to learn about myself. And I'm not really upset at it right now. I'm not really mad. I'm I'm embracing this. That sounds great. I mean, just going with the flow and letting yourself be messy sounds like life goals to me. (laughs) Can you tell me how it's changed the way or if it has changed the way you and your team work together at Augur currently? We are now, like everyone else, meeting online. And that has taken a bit of getting used to. But there was a point at which I think it was early, like around spring last year, we we just took some time off to try to sort of deal with how pandemic has changed our individual lives and how we, we couldn't really meet to see our family and friends. But we know that Augur is something we love and something that our readers and our community love as well. So we got to working on that. One big thing that we started doing was having our pitch meetings online. Usually we would all get together and sort of go to the publisher's house and just have a day of it and, you know, meet and hang out and discuss the pieces we loved. But we had to do this online, which is okay, which is fine. The last February, we had our Kickstarter in February for the month. And we all got to go out afterward to have a good big celebration with all of us. And that was the last time we all spent time together in person. But we're always looking forward to uh, meeting up again. Another thing that we did was hosted an online conference in November of 2020. And doing all that and planning all that online was a bit of a a hurdle at first, but we have a, a great number of people on our team who are enthusiastic and really care about our mission. So we ended up doing that uh, and it was quite successful. But I think that the way we run our operations usually is 
luckily is quite amenable to online work. So we've just been taking that in stride. Had you already planned a conference and had not intended it to be online or was that all, all was the intention? No, you're correct. Yeah, the intention was for it to be in person. Uh, we've been thinking about the conference, which is called AugurCon. That was on November 28th. 2020. Um, we had been thinking about having a conference since fall 2019. And we sort of wrote down our ideas and we had several ideas and we met up and all these things and had all these grand plans. So we had written a grant to the TAC and we had gotten the grants, but it was very much for an in-person conference. We had been looking at venues and looking at catering options and the possibility of flying people in. But we had to switch everything to a virtual platform. We used StreamYard for panels and we used Zoom for workshops. It ended up being quite great because we didn't have to fly anyone in. We could sort of connect with people on the West Coast, people in Vancouver, some people in California, as well as people across Canada to invite them to come and speak at our conference. And I think that our audiences really loved it. But in some ways, switching to a virtual platform made it like easier and also more difficult. Another thing was like we had just a lot more money to spend, which meant that we could pay people more. So that was great. I know not a lot of cons for speculative literature pay their panelists or pay all of their panelists, but we were able to do that because we had sort of extra funding from not having to pay for a venue. So that was good. Yeah, it's like there's good and there's not so good happening in this pandemic year plus now. And I know, you know, we're talking about the pandemic itself, but in terms of the writing about the pandemic, that you're not looking for pandemic stories and say on your website that you do not wish to re-traumatize your readers and staff who are volunteers during this present pandemic. Can I ask, when is the time and place for pandemic poetry and stories for writing about the present dystopia or is it always in the past? How far in the past? What are your thoughts on that? That question is interesting because I think it can also be expanded to like, when is, when is a time and place for like insert art, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you can write about art. I mean, in this, for, in this particular case, it's pandemic poetry and stories, but I think you can write about it actually at any time. The reason we're not accepting pandemic poetry or stories pandemic content is just because we don't wish to re-traumatize our readers and staff. And this is a decision that was made by the publisher. And a lot of people agreed because, you know, this is the traumatizing event. I think we're all going around trying to be as normal as we can, but it's just not the same. I know that people have been, especially during this time, a lot of artists and others want to find a way to express how they're feeling. And if they want to do that through art, I think that's great. I think that's fine. I have written pandemic poetry before. I've written three poems and I've published them throughout like, the year. I was invited to submit to uh, specific journals that are taking pandemic poetry and stories. And I think that they recognize that for some people, now is the time and place for pandemic poetry and stories. It's not Augur is not the place for that. But for other journals, that is the case. I haven't found that I used poetry specifically to feel during the pandemic. It hit quite close to me because uh, my mom had COVID and she's fine now, but I was thinking a lot about mortality and I surprised myself with sort of this contemplation coming out through poetry. And I never thought I was that kind of person to write about these things. So I guess the short answer to your question is technically, I think any time, any time is the time for art. 
So I would, would hope that people use art to express how they're feeling uh, during this particularly traumatizing moment in our world's history. Augur is just not the place for that work right now, but the time and place I think is now and anytime. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that your mom has recovered. You just asking in part because I've heard sort of journals running the gamut. So you have some who are like publishing special editions about the pandemic and then you have others who are like, you know, maybe more about like the quality of the work, like, oh, well, we're in the middle of something, take some time to, you know, look back on it. And that's when they think the writing is going to emerge that will be work that they want to publish. Yeah, but I really appreciate, it sounds even more like just a self-care type of stance too, to be like, you know, we want to care for the people that are reading in our community. Can you tell our listeners about the deeply human and character-driven narratives and sci-fi writing that you love to publish at Augur? Yeah, certainly. So first of all, we're a Canadian magazine. So most of the work we publish is from Canadians as well as Indigenous writers on this land. And there's something about Canadian literature in general that is just a little bit softer, I want to say, softer than other kinds of literature. And that kind of seeps into speculative literature as well. Many of my friends in Canada who are writing speculative literature, they try to submit their work to international journals and American journals. And they always come back with this feedback that's sort of like, well, you know, the tone is nice. The characters are nice, but like nothing happens. There's no plot. There's no action. There's no excitement in the story. I feel like that's just a, a candlelit kind of tradition. So at Augur, we accept those kinds of stories as well. Nothing has to happen in the story. There doesn't need to be like explosions or big shocking twists. It's just enough to have well-developed characters and a beautiful world. And in that way, readers can be invited into a way of being almost within the story that we just love to settle into. We as readers and as editors reading the story, we really love characters that are whole and human. The Well, human is like a, as an adjective, they don't literally have to be human, but we want to read stories that move us. A lot of different editors on, on the editorial board we have different things for us that makes a good story. I happen to be a plot person. So I like when things happen, but I also like characters and places in the story and poems as well that sort of stay with me after I've put the story down. I want to be thinking about this story whenever I'm doing other things like at work or doing groceries or anything like that. And these are the kinds of stories that we value. And I don't know if this answer is getting long-winded, but I find it's also kind of difficult to classify these kinds of stories. And I think that's kind of the point and why Augur opened up this kind of liminal space for this kind of writing, if that makes sense. For sure. And definitely not long-winded at all. I think it's also really refreshing to hear about creating that space for pieces that aren't, I mean, even though you're saying you're, you are a plot person, but that don't need to hit all those specific, really almost now formulaic notes, mm. I guess, that a story has to hit. It's like really more about the characters, like you said, and the humanity within it. I'm going to extrapolate from that then that 
it's not necessary for stories to follow like a linear arc or can yeah. you talk to that a bit too? Yeah, I've seen a lot of I'm okay, so I'll just I'll just say right now that I'm online a lot. And a lot of the discussions that I've been seeing online have talked about how we can talk about, you know, certain stories being Western or sort of dominant in the mainstream, but we can also talk about different story structures or particular story structures that are also dominant. Part of that difference and part of that diversity that Augur loves is also sort of a diversity in the way the story is structured. So like, for example, you don't always need you know, a resolution to your climax. Your climax can happen at any point. We just want something really that makes us feel and that holds us really tightly. And the way in which that story is told, we don't necessarily have a formula for that. It sounds too then that you're really looking for people's personal writing like it's imbued with that kind of emotion because the writer is imbuing it with that kind of emotion yeah yeah we we don't need necessarily that you hit specific beats we just want a lovely story (laughs) that is lovely i understand also that auger is particularly interested in the kinds of futures that marginalize people's envision for themselves and reading from your submission guidelines, but from dream touched realism, slipstream, fabulism, magical realism, with a note that writers should educate themselves before claiming the term magical realism. And for lack of a better descriptor, again, I'm quoting from your site, literary in quotes, speculative fiction. You also say your perfect submission defies categorizations. So pieces that could be too speculative for Canlit magazines or not speculative enough for speculative magazines. Can you tell us about a couple of pieces that resonated with you and that you published because of how they defied categorization? Yeah, I think of two pieces in particular from, I believe, issue 3.1 and 3.2 or more, two more recent issues. So one of these pieces was called The Bananas Barcode, and it existed in a future where a lot of different objects and other sorts of commercial items had different codes uh, and were sort of commercialized and capitalized in different ways. But all of that, you know, industrialization wasn't really at the forefront of the story. It was more about a person who was working on sort of a banana plantation, and they wanted to help a young girl who was, how should I put this? She was someone who was trying to cross the border into the country illegally, quote, in quotes, quote, unquote, illegally. And this story, instead of focusing on a lot of the outside world, so how the society was structured or how specific elements of government got to be the way they were, or even like the year, the time it was taking place, were kind of second to the relationship that the main character had with this young girl and the relationship that the main character had with his partner, both in his home life and his work. The reason why I like this story is because it sort of trusts that the reader understands that there is a whole larger world, but the focus is always on the character dynamic. And I feel like at least for me personally, no matter what the story is talking about, it could be on another planet or it could, be, it could be in the future or in the past. If the writer is investing in the relationship between two or more characters, I find that it will always sort of resonate with us in really profound ways. And I wouldn't know how to categorize this story 
if I was working at another magazine. We got very excited about this piece because we didn't really know what to think of it. We just knew that we loved it. And when we don't know what to think of these stories, we enjoy talking about it at our pitch meetings. This is quite a long story. We usually take one long story per issue. This is sort of bordering on the top end of our word limit. And we spent a lot of time talking about the ways in which the characters were resonating with us and the ways in which the setting of the story provided a very unique sort of landscape for the characters to interact. I haven't read a story that took place on a, a banana plantation before or with the kinds of technology that the story had. And I hope to see more from this from this writer in the future. Um, but that's just one example of a story that we really loved. Other stories that we liked, oh, it's sort of hard to talk about because they defy categorization. So it's hard to put them in a, in a category. I'll just talk briefly about the second story called uh, The Myth of the Wound Sealer. And it takes place in Singapore. It's about a, a woman who is called to a home to take care of a dying plant. It's a plant that is rotting and is sick. She's come to take care of this plant. As the story goes along, the main character is uncovering different secrets about the plant and the home and the people who live in the home. And I would call this story very creepy. I wouldn't call it an outright horror story or anything like that. But the atmosphere in the story, it was done so well. Like, I thought about the story for days and I wasn't the one editing it, but I would always read back and just think about like, oh, like what if it had happened this way? Or what if the reveal had happened another way? And it really moved me. And I hope to receive more stories like this in the future. This was in issue 3.1, but that's why I'm, I'm with Augur. So we can sort of get these new pieces that might not have been published in like a traditional Canlit journal or in like a very uh, high fantasy or hard sci-fi journal in the States. So I think we occupy a very unique position in sort of the speculative literature industry. And I feel like a lot of pieces, like the ones I mentioned, can find a home with us. Yeah. And I just love the enthusiasm that you described them with. Like, it's obvious that it's just like these stories were interesting to us and this is why we published them. It's about the response more than anything. I often put editors on the spot too and say, well, you know, tell us what you want to publish. And the answer is nine times out of 10, we know when we see it. And, and that's, I guess that experience, it's like, Sometimes I've also heard it described like a full body experience of like, yes, we need to publish this piece. Yeah, our pitch meetings get quite, well, I wouldn't say contentious, but we we're just very passionate about the pieces that we want and we want other editors to feel the same way. I'm stepping away from my conversation with Therese Mason-Pierre from Augur Magazine right before I invite her to read a poem for us, so stick around for that coming up in just a moment. I'm interjecting to invite you to send me your questions. I will answer them in my upcoming 50th episode of this podcast. So ask me anything about writing, publishing, and shining, and I will answer based on my years of experience as a LitMag editor and the now more than 50 interviews I've done with editors, most of which are published here in this podcast feed, but there are more in private chats in my course and membership communities. Send your questions in by email. You can write them down or record a voicemail and email that. I'll read or play your audio questions and answer them on the show. The email address to send in your questions is podcast at rachelthompson.co. 
That's podcast at rachelthompson.co. Now back to a reading from my guest, Therese Mason-Pierre. So Augur, as you know, but I'll just remind our listeners, is a literary magazine that believes that you can better engage with our pasts, presents, and futures through stories that explore what-ifs and could-bes. I would love to hear if you have some writing to share with our listeners that engages with your pasts, presents, and futures. Sure. Is it okay if I read a poem? Of course. Yes, please do. So I'm going to read a poem that was in my second chapbook, and it's called Manifest. Everything here bleeds blue, iron not tinging the edge of needles, staining gauze after gunshot, but carbon, carbon just the same. The man who flew the ship, you call him master, lies supine under the dashboards while he communes with the stars. Nobody who lives here on this new rock owns anyone else, never has. The mountains remind you of earth. There is a freshness in that they have yet to be scaled, mined for hope, innovated to death. Three weeks here, and you are no closer to charting the people, forcing a schema into something so lovingly defiant. You like that you can't understand their language, that you find other ways to relay your needs and instructions. You let them touch your hair, something you'd never let earth people do. One of them gives you strange fruit, and you bring it to your mouth until master swats it away, opining about poison and gavagai. At night, you sneak away to join them for music under their new moon. Their bodies are their own and each other's. Here, freedom is its own language, a series of swirling joints and bulbs. It is attractive because it is foreign. Also foreign is the idea that you have a body too, that your body can be other people's body if you choose it. By the third hour, you decide you want to die here. The man in the ship has supplies to last a few years, but the landscape here shimmers like a cup overflowing. And you can run now. You can even fly. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. I mean, so many lines, but freedom is its own language. It's beautiful. So you've also published, no surprise after that reading, a lot of writing in other literary magazines. How have the experiences you had publishing in other journals influenced how you approach editing with Augur? I'm lucky to have had good experiences with other editors in other literary journals. I'm discovering as I'm editing with Augur that I put a lot of trust in my editors or in general with other magazines. So when I edit with Augur, I try to ensure that I am sort of putting my best foot forward when it comes to engaging consciously and empathetically with the writers that I'm editing. I edit a lot of poetry for the journal. Within the past eight months or so, I've been editing short fiction, but I started with Augur as a poetry editor. And I know with poetry, a lot of it is very personal. And a lot of poets draw from their life experience to put in to their poems. And poems are often a form of expression, like we talked about earlier with the pandemic being and sort of that is sort of drawing people to express how they feel about that through their art. So 
I try to be careful and kind to my writers when I adjust or suggest edits to their work. It was a kind of care that I received when my work was being edited with writers. I also know that while my work was being edited with editors and in other journals, uh, and I also know that not all writers are like me. And the way I receive edits might not be the same way that other writers receive edits. Luckily, I've had very excellent experiences with the poets that I've worked with for Augur. Some of them have been my friends. Some pieces involved a lot of substantive editing and some just required a couple of punctuation changes. But whenever I'm working with a poet or a writer, I always try to ask them as many questions as I can regarding their work so I know how they would like me to engage in their piece. So I know where my boundaries are or where their boundaries are and to make our editing relationship a fun one and a good one to produce a piece that we're both proud of. That sounds like a dream practice, really, like that you're going to engage with the work at the level that it requires. And I think it's good for listeners to note that too, that this could be a bit of a, a learning experience too about, you know, helping you polish your piece to be the best it can be before it's published. So I understand from your Twitter bio <laughs> and that you also studied bioethics. And I'm curious if there is an overlay between that discipline and the discipline of writing and poetry. Are there any ways that you integrate the two? So I have a bachelor's degree in bioethics and a master's degree in philosophy. And I think that there are very many overlays between philosophy and poetry. I see them both as like very different kinds of arts. I'll even find philosophy in poems when poets ask very grand questions about things like the way the world is or why good people do not so good things or what the nature of love and humanity is. I feel like those are all philosophical questions and you can see those in many places in poetry. I like to do this in my own poetry as well. I like to engage in questions like, so for example, one of the poems I'd written and published for my second chapbook uh, was called A New Face. And it talks about the mind-body problem and sort of consciousness transference. So I spoke about that Ask questions that I thought were relevant, but I also contextualized it in the form of a parent-child relationship. I think that philosophy is very amenable to science fiction and to speculative literature because I think both of these sort of disciplines ask a lot of the same questions. Like I think of something like The Matrix, <laughs> which is sort of all about, you know, minds and bodies. I hope that there are more sort of connections between those two in the future in different kinds of poems. I started out my degree in philosophy and definitely the matrix felt like a lot of what we covered in the first, you know, the intro to philosophy courses. It was like really asking those same, you know, what is the nature of reality? And those kind of questions for sure. I think poetry is a different way of asking those questions, which makes it fun, right? We don't have to, you don't have to read like a 40 page paper on ethics. <laughs> you can just, read a couple poems. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to turn into Augur's submissions. I see Augur is currently not taking submissions. Does this have to do with the increased volume of submissions that I'm hearing from many journals that they're receiving this year? Or was that a planned hiatus? 
we opened for submissions for two weeks. We closed it on March 7th, I believe. And that was due to the increased volume of submissions. We've just been getting more and more submissions since we opened. Our last submissions period, we've received a little over a thousand submissions, which might not be a lot for like journals like Room or you know Prism, but it's a lot for us considering we've been around for less than five years. We're very excited about all the people who want to submit their work to us and we're excited to read all the work, but we are all volunteers and we don't have a super big staff, so we can't open it for like for months at a time. I know some journals do that. So we were only open for about two weeks. And that's just, I guess, to ease our workflow. But we are going to open again this year, I believe in late June or to early July, because we publish two issues per year. Okay, great. So listeners will have a lot of time to polish their work and get it ready for then. When you do open again, Are there any things that you're particularly hoping to receive in the slush pile? That's a great question. Well, I can talk about what I'm interested in seeing. Every editor will sort of have their own wish list. I'm interested in seeing more like urban fantasy stories, sort of fantasy stories that take place in sort of like modern or modernized type worlds, you know, cities, towns, things like that. Because I like to see how fantasy elements interact with the real world. That's something that's really fascinating to me. I also like superheroes. (laughs) We published one superhero story in issue 3.2 that I worked on called XO Tempo, which is kind of like a pop, kind of punchy story. And those are fun. And I feel like that was an interesting respite from the soft, dreamy kind of ethereal tone that we usually receive. So I'm interested in seeing more superheroes. I love it. So you mentioned a little bit about how maybe you hash things out in the, you know, now virtual editing table. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happens at the selection stage? And then also once you've selected the writing about how you work with the writing you receive? So um, we have a number of readers, first readers that are also volunteer, that read the submissions once we open for submissions. We used to open for submissions for about a month, and we've reduced this to two weeks, and we get just as much writing, (laughs) if not more. So while those two weeks are happening, people are submitting their work, and our first readers are going into our submission system called Moksha. We don't use Submittable. Submittable is quite expensive when I checked. So we use a system called Moksha, and everyone goes in. Moksha has a rating system, so you can rate this pieces from 1 to 10. And 10 is just absolutely excellent. I would fight for this piece. And then a one is a piece that's either like blatantly sort of disrespects our submissions guidelines or just doesn't follow them in general. So our first readers will go in and rate the pieces. The second readers, who are the core editorial staff that will go in and check to see if the piece is closer to what we want to publish and to see in the journal. The pieces that are highly rated. So rated eight to 10 go to myself and the other editor-in-chief. And we create what's called a long list. So these are the pieces that people have read and highly rated and thought were a good fit for the journal. So we make a very long, long list, about 40 to 55 pieces for poetry and fiction. And so I talk with the other editor-in-chief who focuses more on fiction while I do poetry. And we sort of talk about whether or not we're seeing a theme in our long list. Then we narrow down our long list to about 20 pieces. 
this is, I guess, our short list, 20 pieces for poetry, 20 pieces for fiction. And at that point, we open up the short list to the other core editors. We have about 12 core editors, including the editors-in-chief, and everybody reads everything on the short list. And then they leave their comments, what they liked, what they didn't like, pieces that they're interested in pitching, pieces that they're interested in editing, should they be accepted. Then we all meet together, all 12 to 13 of us, and we have a very long pitch meeting. And our pitch meeting is five to six hours, just a whole day. We sit, we have our food, we go through every single piece on that short list. Um, We talk about what we like, talk about what we are interested in, talk about what resonated with us. And then we go back afterwards and we sort of select the pieces that we will publish and we vote on these. And the people are quite passionate about what they love. I am lucky to have gotten many of the pieces that I want up to this stage. But once we have decided the pieces that are going to be published, and right now, I think at this point, we publish 16 pieces, 15 to 16, um, half, like eight poems and eight fiction pieces. We send out the acceptance letters to the authors. We let them know that their piece was accepted. We send them a contract. We ask them to fill out other details, like their social media handle and their bios and their photos and things like that. And a little bit after that, these pieces start to get edited by um, the individual editors. During our pitch meeting, we'll also talk about who wants to edit which piece, if it's a piece that they really love or a piece that they want to work on. The editing process takes about six weeks, about a month and a half, and each editor is sort of responsible for contacting their author and sort of working with their author on suggested changes. I personally have edited quite a lot of pieces. I'm mostly editing a lot of the poems, and that's about four to six poems that I'm editing as well as sometimes one or two fiction pieces. A lot of our editors on our staff are very interested in fiction, and it's myself and the poetry editor, Leslie. We work on poems together, even though everyone is sort of welcome to edit what they wish. And then after the six-week editing process, we have a little bit of time for reviews, for proofreading, for copy editing, all of those things, for graphic design, layouts. The editors are not really involved in that. We have sort of dedicated people for those things. And then the pieces publish online and we send them to our subscribers. We post little uh, snippets of the stories on our website and we send our authors feedback surveys so they can talk about what they liked and didn't like about the editing process and what they hope to see in the future. And that's our process. Wow. I'm taking notes on that process. That's amazing. From the food at the beginning for the whole day meeting. And then also the feedback, I think at the end is a really great idea to continuously improve your processes. I know a lot of editors listen to the podcast as well. I hear from them. So I hope they're taking notes on that too. So speaking of the future, it's based on something too about predicting the future, I think as well. If I'm correct, I'll link to that, I guess, in our show notes as well. But I'm wondering, what do you see or hope to see in the future of Canadian literature and world literature? And I thought I'd be concrete about that and say, well, in five years from now, and then 10 years from now. Oh, this is a good question. Hmm. Well, I would hope to for the future of Canlit and, I guess, literary spaces, I would hope that it becomes more community-oriented, I think. And that is a vague term. I'll explain what I mean. I hope that it becomes more welcoming to different kinds of people, 
and the ways in which they tell stories and the kinds of stories that they want to tell. I hope that it becomes a safer place. Some people might not feel comfortable or safe navigating these spaces for a variety of reasons. And I hope that this space improves so that they can feel safer. I hope that the community or that Canlet becomes more accessible, not only when it comes to like launches and readings and those physical spaces being in accessible spaces, but also to the kinds of resources and access to resources that writers may have or not know about when even when it comes to how to write grants or how to connect with your favorite writers or how to access mentors and things like that just more accessible overall i don't know what i can say in five years from now i guess i can say that i I would like to see more more marginalized writers coming up and coming to the fore i'm very happy when i see specific writers, you know, getting signed by agents and getting book deals and getting chat books and things like that. I want there to be more space for them to explore their writing in a comfortable and happy and creation generative way. I want them to feel proud of their work. I hope more people feel proud of their work. I hope people don't feel like they have to share things that they don't want to share. I hope that the community in five years, at least, is more welcoming and open considering that. And I guess in 10 years, in 10 years, so that's 2031, (laughs) I hope that the institutions of Canlet are holding themselves and holding each other more accountable to representing and providing resources to multiple communities. I feel like there's a lot of talk about we're going to do this or we're going to help with this arts community or things like that. But you might not always see change. You might not always see results. I know last summer there's a huge call for Black writers and writers of color to submit to various journals. And I would like to see some concrete change resulting from that, whether that happens next year or in five years or in 10 years. I'd like to see more positive change. I've heard that publishing and Canlet has a very short memory. I don't know what that means, but positive change, more accessibility, and more openness and safety, I think are the things that I'd like to see in the future of Canlet. I'm wondering if by short memory, you're thinking like, is this a trend or is this going to be a permanent change within the institutional part of Canlet? Yeah. Also, like a lot of the problems that Kenlet has had in not even the past 10 years, I find that people aren't always educated on that and no one just talks about it anymore. I'm thinking specifically of like things like the appropriation prize. Like I don't hear people talking about that anymore, even though that was quite jarring. But yes, I also agree with you. So I want to finish with my quick lit round, if I can transition from serious to a little bit more playful. <laughs> okay. So can you finish the sentences, being a writer is? Being a writer is being honest. Literary magazines are? Literary magazines are an experiment. Oh, I like that. Editing requires? Editing requires compassion. Rejection for a writer means? Rejection for a writer means reflection. 
And finally, writing community is? Writing community is always changing. I just want to thank you so much for being part of the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast and answering your questions and sharing your vision for the future with us. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Therese Mason-Pierre, co-editor-in-chief of Augur. There was so much to love in Therese's words, and I particularly was struck by how her writing has changed in the pandemic and her acknowledgement that this is a traumatic point in our history, even though we all feel the instinct, I know I feel it, to act as normally as possible. I also really appreciated her insight into how Canadian writing may differ from writing from the U.S., broad strokes here, of course, but it's food for thought about how nothing happens in stories from uh, Canadians and perhaps Indigenous writers as well. Related to this, she said that Augur accepts writing that doesn't necessarily have to have a climax, and they're looking for work that really makes them feel and holds them tightly. They don't have a formula for how a story is told, and it sounds to me that they're interested in innovative forms and deeply personal writing that you feel as you write. Looking at Augur's guidelines, they accept multiple submissions and simultaneous submissions with a laudable goal of responding to all submissions within eight weeks. They use an online submission tool called Moksha, which is, from what I hear, a lovely alternative platform to the big venture capitalist back tool. That's all I'll say on that subject. And one line from their submission guidelines that I adore is, if you fit into our guidelines, don't self-reject. Submit, submit, submit. They pay 11 cents Canadian per word for short fiction of a thousand plus words and a flat fee of $110 per flash fiction piece. Those are a thousand words and under and $60 per poem. You can find their full guidelines up at augurmag.com. What questions do you have about how to submit your writing or revise it for publication or how to make your writing shine? Email your voice memo or written questions to podcast at rachelthompson.co. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. And when you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every other Thursday and filled with support for your writing practice. If this episode encouraged you to not self-reject and submit your writing to Augur or another journal, I would love to hear about it. You can tag me on social media. I'm at Rachel Thompson on Twitter or at Rachel Thompson author on Instagram and tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or searching for write, publish and shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to keep writing and keep submitting, submitting, submitting luminous writers. I want to acknowledge the lands on which this podcast was created and my hosts on these lands. The first are the Altirabian Bedouin, who are the traditional occupants of the territory near the Red Sea in the South Sinai, where I'm recording. And my guest 
spoke to me from the lands colonially known as Toronto. These are the traditional territories of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.